And if you would please be opening to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Appreciate the, the band. Chris, thank you for leading us this morning. It was wonderful. This morning as we continue on with our series uh, going on to maturity, but really looking at some virtues that we want to walk in and begin to understand and experience in our lives. As we've been doing this, we're really just, we're taking links, think think of it a a chain with links, and we're linking these things together. Uh, These aren't, we're not going through this exhaustive list of virtues. We're just saying, God, what do you have for us to pay attention to? Uh, And particularly, what do we want as a church to, to be the marks of our church? And Kerr started us off with, Gratitude, and then Sean helped us understand generosity. Then we looked at joy and humility last week, and today we're going to consider godliness. But as we put these together, this is the church we want to be. We want to be a grateful church, a generous church, a joyful people that gather together serving the Lord and looking to see Jesus replicated in everything that we do. We want to be a humble church. We don't do everything the best. We don't. I, my, I jumble my words when I preach all the time. You know that. I'm, this is not this refined. This is who we are. It's who we are. We know who we are, but what we do is we make way for Jesus to be everything. And by us decreasing ourselves, we're looking to increase Jesus in everything that we do. And that's what we want to be as a church. And we also want to be a godly church. This is an interesting word because it doesn't happen a lot of times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul gives it to Timothy the most. He uses this word godliness in these two letters, uh, First and Second Timothy. And then he tells Titus to, something about godliness. The Apostle Peter picks up on godliness. But that's it. It's only like nine, maybe around a dozen times, but it's mostly in First Timothy. And what the Apostle Paul is doing, he's writing Timothy a letter, the end of his life, saying, Here, here's what I've done, I've run, I've run the race, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith, everybody should do this. But he wants to give this lasting image to Timothy, as Timothy's pastoring the church in Ephesus. Here's what I want you to do, Timothy. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. Do it for godliness. That's what we're going to consider as we think. We'll look into... Paul's addressing this of Timothy, but also what Jesus models for godliness as well. So we'll start at verse 1 in 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer if you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 
Sorry, I didn't include this in the screen above. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Lord, please be exalted in the preaching of your word. Amen. Godliness. Train yourself for godliness. And godliness has value in in this life, but also in the life to come. Godliness has, think of a coin, it's two sides. It's a coin with two sides. One side has to do with what we believe. What we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about what God says about us. It's what we believe. What we believe about salvation through Christ alone. What we believe about his forgiveness and his redemption and how it makes us new creatures in Christ. There's a lot to believe. That godliness is about believing something. It's also about living something. So one side of the coin is believing, the other side of the coin is living. Do we live for God? Do we live for ourselves? See, we live out of what we believe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, remember the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church that we with unveiled face are beholding the glory of God and we're being transformed into that glory from one degree to another. And it's from the Spirit that gives this. What we behold, we become. What we believe, we act out. If we have a God-defined understanding of forgiveness that's accomplished in Jesus, we will live out of freedom and peace that he provides. But if we have a a self-defined understanding of forgiveness, we'll never feel like we escape the prison of shame and condemnation. See, we live out of what we believe. If, and take forgiveness. If we believe the right thing about forgiveness and what God says, we, live, we will see that in our demeanor, in our joy, in our peace, in our freedom. But if we've tried to figure out forgiveness on our own, trying to base it in our accomplishments or our, our attempts to be pretty before the Lord with our works and our morality, we will never escape the prison of shame and condemnation. But in this passage, we read that Paul is encouraging Timothy to notice that the actions of people reveal their beliefs. So if what we believe, we start living out, that means we can look at how people are living to see what they believe. And it's especially true in the church and in the relationship that we have with the Lord. Within this context that Paul's writing to Timothy in, there's the church in Ephesus, Ephesus where there were false teachers. False teachers who are believing the wrong things which resulted in weird rules about marriage and weird rules about eating stuff or not eating stuff. Paul's telling Timothy, hey, look at what they're doing. It reveals that they lack God's perspective on life, on what he's created and what he's called holy and what he calls good, which resulted in weird living. They weren't living the truth. They were living out of this uh, weird, concocted thing of, I I took a little bit of truth and I mixed it with a lot of mistruth and misunderstanding and I'm kind of creating this way to live. We do that all the time. Especially if if we don't ground ourselves in the truth of God's word, we will only know a fraction of what the word says and we add our experience to it and our experiences are really Poor teacher. (laughs) It's poor. It's miserable to mix that in with truth. So you get husbands who say to wives, you need to submit to me without recognizing 
Jesus says a lot about your submission first, husband. So we take a little bit of truth. Yeah, wives should submit to their husbands, to their own husbands. But the husband is to submit to Christ. That's also there. So if you take a little bit, mix it with some misery, I don't like my life and I don't like my wife and I just want her to do what I want her to do, you need to submit to me. And it, it creates some chaos in life. See, what, we, what we're believing, we will live out. But what we're living out shows what we believe. See how Paul reminded Timothy of the words that, of truth and they provide training for action here. That if you put these before the brothers, verse 6, you will be a good servant of Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So, Timothy, you have the truth, so have nothing to do with the silly myths, but train yourself for godliness, to live a godly life. Train yourself for action, for for seeing Jesus in every capacity of your life, a life that glorifies God because it looks like Jesus. See, this morning we're going to look at godliness is something to believe, godliness is something that we see, and godliness is something that we practice. So first, the godliness is something to believe. Paul brings up these myths, these false teachers that are bringing in this weird way of living life, thinking that by their obedience to these weird rules that God's going to favor them and just like them more. These false teachers uh, needed Timothy to confront them because they were believing the wrong thing. Their, their myths were twisted and their life was crooked. And see, there are myths in every generation that are twisted, that result in crooked living. But all believers are tempted to buy into them as well. Consider truth. There's a myth about truth in our culture today. And it's that truth is found on the inside of us. So we need to look deeper into ourselves to figure out what truth is. You hear it when people say, my truth. Usually, my experience is what now I believe about myself, so it's my truth. It's dangerous because Scripture says truth is not found on... We dig down on the inside. We're not finding something lovely and beautiful. We actually find something decrepit and broken. We need a truth that's outside of us, that we reach toward, and that truth is Christ. There's a myth about love in our culture that is, is being uh, driven toward us and, and our children, I think, bear the brunt of it. But, simply put, the myth is love is anything you feel. So if truth is in you, then you get to define love. And that's where love is love. And to disagree with any of that is to hate. You're not a loving person because you disagree at all. Jesus shows us what? Greater love is no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. We, we have lost, our culture has lost the capacity of understanding that love is built on sacrifice because now love is built on compatibility. How do I stay myself and get you along with me and then we can try to live life together and see how it goes? Faith. There's a myth about faith. The myth is all faith lead to salvation. 
We're just all, we're, we're all around the mountain of God and we find a different trail and let's just, let's just get there. So let's just be at peace with one another. Let's try to rock. Let's try to not convince each other of which one is right. All of them lead to salvation. Just go ahead and do what's, what's good for you. You do you. Because truth is in you and you love you. Everybody else loves you. It's good. But tailing on that with faith is, on the other side, really, uh, science has really driven out the need for faith because it has an explanation for everything. We just have to figure it out. And what what do we have to do? Listen to the science. I'm so annoyed by that phrase because I want to say, which science can I listen to? Because all of them don't agree, you know. Do I listen to sociology? That's a science. Do I listen to psychology? Do I listen to biology? Do I, what, which chemistry? Which one do I listen to? Because when I hear them, it's just <laughs> the science. It's mystical. It's a myth. What we have is God's word. And the Bible says it's a rock. And I can look out and touch, feel, see, even taste a rock if I want to. And it's a rock. And that's God's word. But we have myths about truth. We have myths about love. We have myths about faith. We have myths about purity. The myth today about purity is that it's outdated and it's actually constricting for meaningful living. We need to get outside of ourselves sexually to be able to really experience life, to have a meaningful life. Without, what Scripture tells us, there's, there's a spiritual as well as a physical, emotional connection within the life that we live as sexual beings, but also just wanting to live purely in our fashion or in our thoughts. But it's just, that's, that's outdated. That's archaic. That's, that's so centuries ago. Didn't the 60s release that for us? And now we can live in this freedom of sexual release or sexual whatever? No, we actually we bump up to more brokenness than anything. We, there's no freedom that make love, not war, brought about. But that's when the myths of truth and love and faith started finding their, their seedlings in the... Well, I say that because that's our generations that we have to deal with. There's always myths of every single generation that believers are tempted to buy into. But look, these are the same traits, truth, love, faith, purity. These are the same traits that Paul told Timothy uh, later on in this... Look at verse 12 in chapter 4. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So he's saying, look, there are myths, but watch. Believe the right thing and you will set an example. You will be a visible demonstration of Jesus to be able to to be a, a, a beacon of God's hope in the midst of a twisted and crooked mythical generation. So don't believe the myths, but we do read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that, that godliness is a mystery. I've always been intrigued by that because godliness, we want to we pray for godliness, but wait a minute, it's a mystery, Paul says? Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's a doxology. I appreciate the last song that we sang because we were singing through the truth of who God is. We were singing the mystery of godliness. It's It's something to believe. But what's the mystery? The mystery is this, that God in his love and in his wisdom would have his presence reside inside of us when we repent of our sins. That's crazy. That's a mystery, and it has confounded people through thousands of years because every other religious uh, uh, belief system that I think I can say this, that has ever existed on this planet has been about us becoming more beautiful in and of ourselves in order to be accepted by a deity, by a God-like thing. God says, no, I'm not looking for your perfection. I'm actually looking for your brokenness so I can come fill you. Isn't that wild? We get around it and we, we think about it, we, we hear it enough, and it becomes normal for us, but it really is a mystery, and it is it's shocking. Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells the Colossian church, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. All right, he's saying, I'm living life to make the word of God, to make what I believe fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here it is. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Wow. Apostle Peter says, hey, angels are are looking into how this mystery unfolds in the people of God. That's how it's still exciting for angels to look into this in our own lives and, and find out how Christ in you makes the difference. Can you imagine Old Testament believers looking into our, our lives? <laughs> It'd be like, uh, you know, you have your parents that were always reminding you how they grew up and how much better you have it now. I found myself doing that with my older daughters who have children. I'm like, man, y'all have every gadget that we always longed for, and ones that we never even thought about. The grandparents agree. It's like y'all are raising kids, and it is so easy. Back in our day. I had to drive you around because you were so crying in the middle of the night. That's the only way I could soothe you. And every time I came to a stoplight, you cried again. True. That's true. True story. But they've got, I'm talking to Christian about this. It's like, what, what do you have that you're thinking about? Well, one is this cool little stroller that you just collapses and you put it in the car. How often did we fight with the car seat? And then they have this little bottle warmer thing, the Brezza thing. It's like a Keurig for a bottle. It's like, y'all, we had to use a microwave. <laughs> like I feel like I don't want to rant there, but I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, Old Testament, Old Testament believers looking at us. They, they'd have that attitude. 
Like, you have no reason to complain. You have Jesus in you. They didn't have that benefit. They, they, they were saved by their faith and that the Messiah would come. We're saved because he came and now he resides inside of us. So that it is humbling and it should cause us to not complain so much. The song that we sang earlier, Sovereign Over Us, was ministering to me because in the ways that we think it's weird, God is working our trust in him. When we think he may be completely absent or silent, he's still working with us for our good, so we trust him more and more and more. This mystery... Jesus residing on the inside. It's a beautiful mystery. Paul picks that up in Ephesians chapter 3. I put that in your notes. Maybe you just go back and look at that. He's talking about the mystery of Christ and the union of how God brings the Jews and the Gentiles together in this relational uh, unity for salvation gathered together as a church. It's awesome. Godliness is believing what Jesus said. And it's believing how the Spirit brings this to mind. Remember, that's the Spirit's role. The Holy Spirit brings to mind the things that Jesus taught. We believe the right things. Godliness is believing what Jesus said about God, the Father. It's believing what he said about his own life, his death, his resurrection, and what it means to trust him. It's believing Jesus. And when we believe the mystery of godliness, it'll become visible in our lives because then it becomes something to see. In another area, another occurrence of this godliness to Timothy, in his second letter, is when Paul warned that some have an appearance of godliness. Some are faking it. They have this appearance of godliness, but they they don't have the power that comes along with it. They don't have the presence of God on the inside of them. This is what Jesus dealt with uh, in his interactions with the Pharisees. They believed God would reward their moral effort. This is the religious ruling class, and they had this sway over people, and they'd make up their own rules, and everybody else had to follow the rules. They believed that God would reward them because they they followed all the rules. But they believed the wrong thing. So therefore, Jesus called them hypocrites because they were believing the wrong thing, meaning they were living a life that they thought God was saying, you're just so good. I'm so glad you're on my team. I'm so glad I got you. Jesus said, you've got it all wrong. You're trying to make up the rules and not follow God's rule. You're not believing the right thing about salvation. We too can fake godliness. We can try to, instead of waiting for the fruit of the Spirit to come, it's been deposited by the Spirit inside of us to to come to maturity outside of us, we can try to staple that fruit to ourselves. Try to figure out a way to fake it until we make it in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, humility, forbearance, you, you name it. We can fake it. Just void of what Jesus says. It should be coming from our hearts. Uh, one of the, I think, the scariest verse in the Bible is nothing in Revelation. It's, Re- it's Matthew seven twenty one. 23. I think it's the scariest passage in the Bible. When Jesus says, there's some of you that are come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do everything for you? And what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. 
That's scary. Wait, but... And they start listing their resume. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? That's a better resume than I've got. Jesus says, I didn't know you because you weren't believing the right thing. And my presence wasn't on the inside. Appearances don't count. The heart does. When we believe the right things about Jesus... And Jesus resides in us by his spirit. The spirit will bring about Jesus' actions so we look like him. We don't try to fake to be like Jesus. We mature into who we are in Christ. And it looks like conduct, a Christ-like conduct. And I think the best way, Matthew 7 is the uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I think the the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to study Christ-likeness. Because Jesus is really saying with the Beatitudes that start it, Blessed are those who are like this, because you'll receive this reward. Jesus, he's describing himself. When he's talking about meekness and mercy and purity and peacemaking, he's describing his own life. Jesus calls on people to conduct themselves with a serious righteousness. Without his power, without his uh, presence residing, it's an impossible righteousness. And he says that. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, I have no part in you. How do, we, how do we get a better righteousness than the Pharisees? Jesus simply says, well, trust me. Repent of your sins. Trust me for salvation. And my spirit will be in you. The Beatitudes set up all the ways that Christ's likeness will show up in our lives. So after that, when Jesus addresses anger, when he addresses lust, marriage, Promises, making vows, retaliation, getting to someone. Jesus addresses that. When enemies are pursuing giving in our lives, generosity, anxiety, the Beatitudes are to show up. So Jesus says, believe it, and Christ-likeness will show up in these categories of your life. This conduct can never be reached through just our own gumption, picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and just giving it a better go because we'll fall again. We need a power that's from outside of ourselves. See, that's where the truth from outside of us. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, please give me you so I can grow in this. And it's a power that comes by faith as we trust the truth of who Jesus is. And then this goes from something to believe to something to see. Now we, keep, we have to practice it. It's something to practice. Godliness is a pursuit. We need to be freshly amazed at the truth and the beauty of Jesus and gaze upon him because we become what we behold. We want to see Jesus. We need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit's work and making God bigger and bigger in our lives. Which usually means our view of people becoming smaller and smaller. Practicing godliness means growing in Christ. And we grow in our reading of the word, our spending time with the Lord, time enough to be able to listen and receive from the Lord. And growing looks like walking in the truth of God's word, walking in obedience. We want to trust his word, we want to walk in that obedience, growing in Christ, looking upon him. And godliness It means denying, practicing godliness means denying the kingdom of self in order to exalt the kingdom of God. In all of our activity and actions in our lives, 
Uh, I think they can in some ways be, be separated into are you building your own kingdom or are you building God's kingdom? Are you, working, are you walking out just a selfish desire for comfort or control or significance? Or are you really leaning upon who Jesus is and want him to be everything to everyone because he is everything to you? Whose kingdom are you living for? Our actions can be divided into those categories, and it's good, it's good to visit those. Why, why did I make that decision? Why did I just say that? Does it reveal something about my heart? Am I building the kingdom for myself and want everybody else to bow down to me? Or am I seeking to make myself nothing? So Jesus can be everything. But not doing the kingdom of self thing means we deny, we actively deny ourselves what we think we deserve, the vindication that we think God is too slow in giving us. Just being right. Just want to be right. Because once everybody understands I'm right, the world will be right. We have to build God's kingdom. And then we live. So when we practice, when we're believing by, because we're seeing Jesus, then Jesus will be seen in us. And it, it's this ongoing uh, practice for us. I think we, we get to a place where we simply please the Lord with our lives. So godliness, like all those explanation points, godliness means just live to please the Lord. Just live to please him. I'll give you an example from Genesis chapter 5. It's a weird place to go, but it's helpful. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. One of the, the understandings for walked is pleased. Enoch pleased God. And God took him. I want to walk with the Lord. We want to walk with the Lord. We want to please the Lord. It's an ambition that we have in the New Testament as well. Colossians 1 verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, action and belief. We walk in a manner worthy of him because it pleases him. But remember, we live to please him because he is pleased with us. He's pleased with us. So we we return to him the blessing that we receive from him. God is pleased with you, church. He's pleased with you. I know, I, I, I stand in the front of the line understanding all, oh, we, what's that phrase we just sang, all my reckless choices? Is that what we sang? All the wreckage of my choices. Oh. We, we I put that in front of God. God, how can you love me? I'm going to be pleased with me when I got all this wreckage. He says, I'm pleased with you. So we feel his joy. We feel his pleasure. And we live that out. We walk with him. Lord, thank you so much for the perspective that allows us to free ourselves from uh, the bindings of this world, the traps of the world, the temptations of the world. God, you're generous with us by giving us your word in order to transform our lives. 
I pray that we would indeed be a godly people to have godliness as a characterization of our church and our walks and our lives with one another. Most importantly, Jesus, we want to build your kingdom. We want to build your kingdom. So cause us by your Spirit's power to walk in a pleasing manner to you by, we, by understanding your pleasure over us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's be reminded of our commission as we go. And Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless us.